Welcome to this edition of Human Wisdom Live. And I'm excited today to welcome Kristen Boyce, who's a psychotherapist and uh, counselor from Indianapolis in the United States. And I'm excited because we're going to have a wonderful conversation. We're going to be talking about anxiety, how to avoid it and overcome it, and exploring six key questions. How common it is, what are the common causes, the effects of anxiety, how does it shape our lives, what are the root causes, and how can we respond with our wisdom? Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here today. So how common is anxiety, Kristen, typically in what you've, when you, what you've come across in your practice? Most people have some form of anxiety. It's on a continuum, in my opinion. And really we're seeing in terms of 18 to 24 year olds, we're seeing about 79% wow. of, of 18 to 24 year olds research is now showing are struggling with some sort of anxiety or depression. I see more anxiety. It may appear like it looks like depression. It really is anxiety. There's a lot of fear hmm. of not feeling enough, not feeling good enough. And adults, we're looking at about one in three. I mean, about 20 to 30%. Teens are one in three and adults are about 20 to 30% in general. I think that's low. I I would put that up at 50%. Right. So it's a huge problem, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, and uh, women, of course, are twice as affected as men. Uh, maybe it's just constitutionally is the way we're made up. And what are the common causes in your view? What are the young people so, for example a lot of a lot i think well there's many causes if we look at root causes we can go back to attachment hmm. in childhood so i kind of take a little bit of a deeper approach i'm looking at how was the bond hmm. between mother and child hmm. or if there was an adoption how was the bond with the adoptive the the biological and then how is the um attachment with the, the, the adoptive parents. We're also looking at any medical traumas that someone might've had um, either in the birthing process or perhaps in young childhood that can get trapped in the nervous system in the body. Also um, anxiety obviously can be due to stress, family dynamics, yes. certainly play a role, relationship stress, uh, depending on circumstantial, if there's grief or loss or relationship discord, breakups. And in young people, we're seeing um, a lot of social media is creating what we call shame, not feeling good enough, which can lead to a lot of anxiety. So there's a lot of comparison that can create um, a sense of unworthiness, unlovability, and that really impacts how our, because we're not, our brains aren't fully developed until we're 25 mm -hmm. and we're being exposed to media that we're really not able to fully metabolize as, as young adults and teens. Yes. yes. So for young people, it's body image, what others think of them. They don't feel good enough. Maybe it's exams or the future. They don't know what to do in the future. And for adults, it's, you know, the fear of death, perhaps money, uh, children, what's happening to my children, jobs, recognition is a big one. <laughs> you know, am I going to be recognized for what I do? 
And of course, it comes from our relationships. Uh, let's pick up that thread of uh, when you say our previous trauma and how it impacts our nervous system. And it just makes our whole system hypersensitive and hyperreactive to the world, doesn't it? So the same stimulus that for an ordinary person or a person who's not suffered trauma would not cause any impact. But for someone who's suffered trauma and not been able to process it, their reaction, they feel threatened much more easily, right? Yes. I think trauma, if we define it, is kind of a split from your authentic self. So in order to belong to the family system, in order to maintain that attachment, yeah. we somewhat sever a parts of ourselves and that can result as trauma. Now, trauma, we think of big T trauma, little T trauma, big T trauma. We think of abuse, mm. ongoing abuse, neglect, not getting our needs met. Little T trauma can be something, you know, we think of also big T trauma, natural, natural, like natural disasters. We think of things that are major, right? When we think of trauma, we also have little T traumas, something someone said to us at school yes. that stuck with us and became a belief system yes. in our minds. And so our nervous system then is scanning for, I don't want to have any more pain. I don't want to feel any sense of gr grief, loss, hurt, mm. abandonment, rejection, judgment. So we try to protect ourselves from feeling that pain or hurt again. Right. So we become almost hypervigilant in that way. And that's what trauma does to us. It splits us off from our authentic self. Then we become almost protective, guarded in a way, um, which is meant to help us be adaptive. And then it can become maladaptive as an adult. As a child, it's very adaptive. Yes. So I think what you're saying is it's trying to protect us. Our anxiety is trying to, it's, a, it's after all linked to thinking. I am imagining that I'm going to be hurt. And that fear of that pain then makes me feel anxious right? the whole emotional reaction uh, comes so firstly to recognize if we explore the root cause of it it's linked to our thinking because if we distract ourselves the fear goes away for a little while and but um it's also a cry for security isn't it cry for security love acceptance being in a group not being uh, isolated, uh, perhaps. Um, and our mind assumes our fear comes from the outside. Okay? Each and every time. It may or may not be true, but it assumes the fear is caused by. Um, what about parents? Do you think parents transmit anxiety to children? 100%. I think it travels, if you will with you wherever you go. So if you become a parent, we think we're managing it and really it, it lives in the nervous system. Mm. So our energy, we bring a certain energy mm. and not only we could bring our anxious energy, mm. we can bring our anxious thoughts, our fears, our worries, mm. our concerns. And we're trying to be helpful mm. in protecting our children. We want so much to protect them from hurt, from something bad happening, from them experiencing pain, from them experiencing shame. Mm. So we work on trying to protect them from those things. And we don't want to label it as good or bad. We just want to notice mm. 
and be aware of how does my body feel? What may be unprocessed in my own life that I haven't really processed emotionally? Meaning, is there something I kind of buried, suppressed, pushed down that's now inviting me into nurturing it, tending to it? Because we don't want to pass that down to our children. And if we look at generational trauma, we will see a lineage. We, we, in our world, we call it a genogram, where we look at someone's history and we can look at anxiety generationally. But that's not what it was. People weren't aware of that. No. We're becoming so much more aware, but they weren't aware. They didn't have this information. They were survival modes. So parents are not aware that we are transmitting our anxieties to our children. Study harder. Why can't you be like other kids? Why are you 10th in the class? Why aren't you number one? Or, you know, why didn't you? And so on. If you worked harder, you'd be number one. You'd earn a better income. And, and so basically, we're taking our fears and passing them to our children without realizing that we're doing that. And just waking up and asking that question, what fears am I transmitting to my children? And is that in their best interest? That question itself might lend its open the door to wisdom, right? Yes. And I think our children carry the wisdom, carry so much wisdom. They come in with wisdom. Yes. And my children have been my greatest awakening to mirror back to me mm. what was unattended to. Mm. So if they're anxious, it's a mirror back to me to say, oh, <laughs> What am what is the invitation for me to look at? Mm. And I have done the deepest work because my children invited me in and I was aware enough to say, okay, there's mm. something in here for me to explore. So people bring their children to therapy and they think, here, fix my kid. Uh, and I'm thinking, welcome to therapy. We are all going to do our own work because that's how we, we heal systems. When yes. we're all willing to lean into that discomfort yes. and tend and nurture those parts that didn't get nurturing perhaps earlier in life. But also to realize it's just a natural, fear is a natural part of thinking and it has its rightful place in our life. But it's when it gets out of hand or becomes dysfunctional and a disproportionate. Um, the other thing is that, you know, when our mind is afraid or anxious we assume our anxiety comes from our exams and what others are thinking of us and how we look and so on but you realize the person who's anxious is anxious about a hundred things whereas the person who's not anxious the same things don't cause the same degree of anxiety so i think the first thing to wake up is to realize this anxiety is a product of thinking it appears to come from the outside but it actually is generated from the inside in terms of our the way our mind is functioning. As you said, to try and protect the psychological self, right? Not the physical self. The physical self is common sense. Don't go out at night in a you know, troubled street, if you like, or whatever. But the psychological threats, criticism, for example, they multiply and they're harder to deal with, aren't they? Yes, because it affects who we think we are. So it affects the I am. Like we think I am not smart enough. Mm. I am not successful enough. I don't have, my family isn't look like the family on social media. I mean, mm. we think we are less than. Mm. 
Yes. And so that I am belief is powerful. It affects the nervous system. It affects the emotional component, spiritual yes. and psychological. It really makes a significant impact. And so someone's something said becomes then an integrated belief on so many levels. Yes, yes. And we don't understand the nature of the eye. See, so that's why this threat feels very real. And someone told me the other day quite nicely that the feeling of anxiety is real, but the threat that it's pointing to may not be real. You know, I'm getting on a plane, it's going to crash. That may not be real, but the feeling is real. So you acknowledge the feeling, but just remind yourself that the threat may not be um, as real. One question we didn't touch on, which maybe we could go back to a little, Kristen, is how does anxiety impact us? How does it impact your clients in, your, in their day-to-day -day lives? It impacts our thinking, our emotions. It impacts our day-to-day -day functioning, what we, who will, how we'll interact with people, how we feel about ourselves. Um, it impacts how we show up in relationships, how we parent. How we show up at our jobs. Here's something I want to say about trauma that's really important. Mm -hmm. Trauma takes us out of the present moment mm -hmm. because the invitation is to be in this moment. Trauma takes us out of this moment and takes us either in the past or takes us into the future. Yes. And it's trying to protect us in some way from either not repeating the past. Yes. or something bad happening in the future or criticism, whatever that looks like. Yes. And so what we work on is how do we get work through the trauma to be back into the present moment, which is yes. the invitation. Yes. I used to be a surgeon, spine surgeon. So many of my patients came with backache and actually it was their anxiety that was causing their backache. I remember one patient, very interestingly, she came to me about three months, I tried everything to help her and um, it hadn't worked. So I just said to her, okay, why don't we just take three months, come back in three months. She came back and said, I'm cured, my backache's gone. I said, what happened? She said, I got rid of my boyfriend. He was really stressing me out. <laughs> so you can see how this can cause abdominal pain, chest pain, uh, you know, and um, and so on. But in society as a whole, fear and anxiety then drives human behavior in ways that aren't helpful. Like the arms race is all about countries that are afraid of each other. You know, we spend $1.6 trillion on arms and a billion people every day go hungry. Someone came from another planet, they'd look at us and say, we're crazy. Why are we so afraid of each other? <laughs> Irrationally, you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or if we've been hurt, we close our hearts to love. Do you see that in your clients at all? The so much. Yes. Now people, when they've been heartbroken in some way mm. or feel rejected or abandoned, mm. the fear of vulnerability mm. and sharing their hearts unguarded, mm. right, is scary to them because they don't want to go through the pain again. They don't want to go through the hurt. They don't want to go through the grief and loss. Yes. And so they will kind of cocoon themselves, so to speak. And then they feel really lonely 
because they don't have authentic connections because they're, they're trying to protect themselves and the risk feels great to them. If we've ever gone through a heartbreak, we all know that it's painful. It's painful and it hurts and it makes us feel like, oh, especially if you've been on the receiving end, what's wrong with me? Why was I enough? Why wasn't I lovable? And so that is something that's so important to nurture and tend to. So it doesn't isolate you from authentic connection. So what we're saying is our pain conditions us to behave in a certain way that doesn't serve us in the future. Right. To try to protect us. It's yeah. it's a it's an interesting, we want to thank it for its service because it's trying to help us. Mm. It's trying to serve us mm. in some way. And when we can go, thank you so much, mm. and I'm okay. I can handle this. I'm enough. I yeah. got this. I can tolerate. So our window of tolerance. to handle all the emotions when we can get to a place where I can say, I I can tolerate these emotions. I'm okay. I can handle it. That's the freedom that comes. Whatever happens, I'll be okay. I'll manage. I'll be okay. Yes. And when we've been highly traumatized, we don't believe that we we're scared of that we are in in the nervous system a great book by dr basil vanderkolk the body keeps the score Mm. outlines how it's trapped in our nervous system and when we connect to the body that's why the breath is so important then we can move it up and out instead of letting it drive us yes yes we can tend to it you also realize perhaps that our thoughts tend to exaggerate fears, exaggerate. So nobody loves me. I'll never find love again. I'll never get another job. You know, my future is doomed and so on. So just to realize and wake up that the mind has a tendency to exaggerate. And that perhaps helps you also respond with a little bit of wisdom. Come back to the center. As one 10-year-old child told me, your fear is just your imagination playing up, you know. Um, okay, all right. But the other thing it does is it makes us prisoners of our circumstances. Right? We're afraid of change, and that can trap us in unhealthy relationships, unhappy jobs, and and so on. Do you feel you see that in your clients? Yes, the fear keeps them wanting to keep what's kind of predictable, mm. almost even if it's not what they want or not necessarily the best option for them, but it's predictable. It feels safe. It yes. feels certain. Yes. And so they will stay because yes. the fear of the unknown, the fear of kind of going back into a survive, what feels like survival because it's unknown and uncertain. So they'll stay in a pattern or a relationship or a job. Because it's predictable. 20% of relationships are abusive, according to different sets of data. And yet people persist in staying with them. Because as you rightly said, the anxiety of change is more than, you know, the challenge of being in a a difficult relationship. Um, And of course, when I talk to uh, children, 
it's really interesting how this anxiety also means they stop trying anything new. Why should I bother? I'm not good enough. You know, that they carry that belief with them. And so this fear of failure comes from public speaking. They won't try any, they won't do any public speaking or try anything new or, and so on. So it really limits our life, doesn't it? In so many ways. Right? It does. It does. And when we can notice it, tend to it, that's the freedom. And I do see more anxiety in children than ever before. For sure, more anxiety in children. Because one, because they've been isolated for a for some time, and two, they're more on devices than ever before. Whether it's video games, um, mobile devices, computers, and so they're not having the human interaction and connection that is necessary for human development. Yes, we are not talking about that, but that does contribute to anxiety because we are wired neurobiologically to have interaction. Um, in person and face to face. I mean, we can do it on a computer screen, yes. but there's nothing more powerful than in person. Yes. And maybe let's touch on social media and children and anxiety because that's a really potent mix because the mind's comparing all the time without our awareness. And now you've got a million things you can compare yourself to and others are better in some way or the other. You feel less than. And then, then just starts creating that anxiety, you know? I'm hurt. I don't want to be hurt again, as you said. What and you know, and so on. So it's a huge problem. Um, in and as you say, it's underrepresented, right? They, the stats say one in three young people suffer from anxiety, but I think, as you said, it probably is fifty percent. Uh, I think Newsweek called it the big uh, epidemic, the new pandemic, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, in in America. Okay, so let's turn our attention to how can we respond now with our wisdom, which we already have so in us all, all of us. And perhaps, okay, let me get the ball rolling and think that when you're in the middle of an anxiety attack, to realize that you've got to have prepared, have the skills, like it's almost like a drill, like a fire drill, and prepared that fire drill beforehand, because in the middle of an anxiety attack, you're going to lose all agency. You're not going to have the skills you need to address it, right? So we need to prepare ourselves beforehand. Let's talk about that. What can we do to prepare ourselves for an anxiety attack when it's going to happen? This is a really important piece to practice before you actually have a, a panic attack is what we call it here, panic attack. So the first thing is we want to get in the present moment. So we're going to put our feet on the floor. Why Mm -hmm. do we do that? So our body is feeling some surface underneath us. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to kind of press our feet into the floor. We can do this together as an exercise. This is what I walk clients through Mm -hmm. when they come in and we practice this at the very first session. Mm -hmm. So they have a resource to go to, like you said, Mm -hmm. when they feel panic. Mm -hmm. So first thing we're going to put our feet on the floor. And then we're going to inhale through our nose for four. We're going to hold for four and then slowly exhale out our mouths for eight. Why do we do this? Because we're trying to slow when we're in anxiety, things are very quick. Mm. They're going very fast. Our thoughts are going fast. Our body's breath speeds up. Mm. Our, our heart rate increases Mm. and we're trying to slow things down in the nervous system. So we're going to press our feet into the floor. 
I'm going to take an inhale through our nose. Belly to the spine and release out your mouth. And it's that slow, smooth exhalation that's the key, right? Key, like your cooling soup. Yes. Or your cooling for kiddos. I say we're gonna cool, you're gonna smell the cookie hmm. and then cool the cookie. So smelling the cookie or cool the cookie. Right. Right. And the key here is practice. So what I have clients do is every hour. I have them set their handy dandy phones, their alarm on their phones, and they try five to six breaths. Mm. So now we're reconditioning the body mm. to learn when I feel anxious, when I feel scared, to slow things down. The second component I teach people to get them out of the brain stem, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, or flop. Fawning is people pleasing. Mm is almost like a faint response mm. is what we do is we orient ourselves to the space that you're in. Mm -hmm. So what that means is I'm going to look around mm -hmm. and I'm going to notice an object. I'm going to describe its shape, color, size, texture, mm -hmm. and I'm going to focus on that until I can start feeling myself shifting. If you have, I'm old school where I learned how to drive on a manual um, car. So we, we, shift gears. We're going from that brainstem, mm -hmm. um, that fight, flight, freeze, fawn, or flop response into the prefrontal cortex that says, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I can handle this. Mm -hmm. And now my rational part of my brain can come more online and work through that panic. You can do this any place, anywhere. I've had people had to go, have to go to court, um, for a custody hearing, or if they're, you know, in a divorce case, and they're thinking, if I see my partner again, I'm going mm. to have a panic attack, or they may have had a, something traumatic happen. And they're afraid they're going to like, they're going to get on a plane and they're afraid that they're going to have a panic attack on the plane. And once we practice this and the body has body memory, yes, they can access it. Yes. Yes. That's why the practice of meditation, mindfulness, breath work. Yes. Orienting to the here and now is so empowering. Yes. And we you've got to shift. do that regularly beforehand, right? It's like a fire. Regularly. Drum. Prepare yourself, you know, for that moment, because when it happens, you're going to lose agency. Your brain's going to flip. This is Dr. Dan Siegel's brain model. Yeah. I don't know. If, let me see if I can see myself, but the brain flips. This is when you're in a panic attack. My mm. prefrontal cortex has gone offline mm. and I'm panicked. Yes. And what I work on with clients is how to get back online, get that prefrontal cortex back online. And the more you practice breath work, the more you practice orienting to your nervous system and your body and grounding yourself, the more equipped you're going to feel when the panic comes through, you're going to yeah. be like, your brain will go, okay, I know what to do. We've done this drill. Hmm. We've practiced this. I know what to do. And sometimes just an exhale, 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 exhale can slow things down as well and dispel the intensity in the nervous system. Yes. So that's another option. I really teach clients though, the square breathing where you're practicing that that's very regulating to your nervous system yes. and calms the anxiety way down. Yes. 
I think it activates the parasympathetic system, the slow yes. breathing out. And maybe a couple of other things in the middle of an attack, we are still focused there, is to realize that right now you're okay. To remind yourself, if you can, that right now there's no problem. It's in the future, whatever it is, but right now um, you're okay. And one thing I found really helpful is to also remind yourself that it's like being in a scary dream. That it, the, the threat may not be as real as you think. So when you wake up from a scary dream, immediately your fear goes away because you realize you've just been dreaming. So to ask yourself how real that threat is, whatever it might be, um, and maybe those are the things that might help. Okay, so now we've done some work inside an anxiety attack, but there's a lot of work we can do outside, can't we, to explore the nature of fear and, and all of that. And I think for me, the first thing is to take ownership of the feeling. Ownership doesn't mean responsibility. Ownership just means it's happening in me. I'm going to be curious to find out what's going on underneath. I'm going to go on a journey of learning about it and realize that it's not about the exam or the court case or the divorce or whatever it might be. It, that might be the trigger, but the reaction comes from me. So what can I do? to learn about what's happening in me. You know what I mean? Um, and you talked about exploring what's underneath the anxiety when we spoke. Do you want to speak on that, Kristen? Yes. I walk, I walk myself through this in clients. I practice this in my own life to hold a keen curiosity for myself of what do I feel because we weren't allowed to oftentimes because our parents didn't have this information and culturally it wasn't perhaps even acceptable to connect to emotions. Emotions are navigational systems and emotions come and go and they also live in the body. So I asked myself, what do I feel? And research has narrowed down, down neuroscience, thank you neuroscience, has narrowed down to seven core emotions. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of have a cheat sheet. When we ask ourselves, what do I feel? Here's the seven. We have fear, which is what we're talking about today. We have um, anger, which can also be a secondary protective yes. emotion. Yes. Okay. We have disgust. People don't really like to talk about that one, <laughs> but it's there. It's a core emotion. Sadness is another one that people want to move away from or numb because it feels painful. And when we can go, when we can accept sadness, there's so much liberation there. Yes. Then we have joy, excitement, and sexual excitement. Those are the seven core. And so when I'm feeling anxious, I ask myself, what am I feeling? Mm. Where do I feel it in my body? Mm. I take several deep breaths and I get curious about what's underneath the anxiety. If I think of anxiety as a secondary kind of emotion, right? It's, right. it's not the core. It's hovering to invite us into deeper exploration. Yeah. Thank you, anxiety, even what's though we don't like it. Yes. What's going on underneath? What is it trying to tell me? What, what can I learn about myself? Right? What can I learn yes. about myself? from yes. this feeling, which we never ask ourselves. We're always trying to run away from it, aren't we? Yes, and extinguish it. Yes, so the first thing is not to run away. To, to be, be with. Curious. Be with. Yes. 
Let it and be. And so once I'm with it, then I can, then it leads me down such a beautiful path mm. of invitation of, and now I can find the healing I'm looking for. Mm. I can find the relief because I'm moving the anxiety up and out of my body instead of pushing it down and suppressing it mm. or eating it or drinking it or whatever, or social media, <laughs> getting on a device. There's so many ways that we move away from rather mm. than lean into the discomfort. And we work on building up that window of tolerance to do that mm. through the breathing, through mindfulness, yeah. through resources to feel like then I can do that. I can handle it because a lot of people have a thought or a belief that I can't handle it. And yeah. we have more internal resources than we give ourselves credit for. Yes. I think the key is to be with. And I'm going to show you on the app, we've got a module called Looking Without Language. And essentially, it's about meeting a feeling without thinking. Meeting a feeling with the sensation of it. Not even to call it fear and anxiety. Just like you would meet a feeling of hunger without calling it hunger, for example. Or a feeling of thirst. And here's the secret. Because anxiety is kept alive by thinking. It's rooted in thinking. So if you can meet a feeling without thinking, it can dissolve. And how do you do that? Well, you begin with a tree or a bird flying across the sky. You just watch nature without really naming or be just being with. And if you can practice this being with, with smaller sensations, when the big one comes, you can be with. And it can just dissolve, can't it? And what came up for me when you were sharing just being with is a visual of if you can be with all parts of yourself, you can then be with your children mm. and their big emotions mm. and their big fears. You can yes. be with your partner. Yes. You can be with another person because yes. it doesn't dysregulate you. You are okay with just being with. Right. You don't have to so intervene. You don't have to intervene. You don't have to fix, rescue, save. You just get to be, which is what we all are craving, to be seen, to be known, to be understood, to be loved. Yes. And yeah. that if you can embody just being and accepting yes. whatever's there, yes. you can offer that to others. That's something really beautiful because yes, half the population might suffer from anxiety, but the other half has to live with the first half. And so how does someone who isn't anxious maybe deal with someone who's going through an episode and as you said show up be and don't try to fix it at least in allow. the beginning just yes, allow it to be show love acceptance yes. compassion and be my daughter had um a heartbreak she got broken up with for the first time and she was heartbroken mm. and i just said just let it out mm. I just sat with her mm. and I didn't try to fix it. I just offered her love and mm. compassion and, and the watching her just be with it and letting it clear up and out. Mm. That's so beautiful of a process. Cause then she learns how to do that mm. on her, like outside of being at our house. Yes. And the other beauty of that is if we can be with say a heartbreak or whatever trauma we've suffered, it doesn't leave a residue for the future. 
See, it completely flowers and completely dissipates. And if we've not accepted it, that's when it shows up in our dreams in the future and, you know, and conditions our life and, and all of that. So this ability to be with and particularly be with without thinking or without language, you can cultivate that by beginning with nature, with a tree, just look at the sky, <laughs> allow that, you know, to notice without thinking. You don't need to you don't need thinking to notice the beauty of a tree. You can look. See, You don't need thinking to notice anxiety you can be with. So it's not easy, by the way, is it, Kristen? But it's a skill we can all learn. Yes, it's a skill and a practice because thoughts want to come up all the time. And we don't want to make them wrong or bad either. I yes. think it's just allowing whatever comes through yes. to come through. And speaking to the work you do, I think there's a spectrum. So if you've got, if you're at the severe end of having a lot of trauma from your past and so on, then you do need some professional help, you know. But if you're in the mild to moderate side of it, then maybe you can manage this yourself just by, you know, going through all the things we've been we've been talking about. I often talk to children and work with them and divide their say divide your anxieties into three buckets. The first bucket is or where things which are really rare, you know, falling planes falling out of a sky, for example, or I'm going to die of cancer. You're 15. I mean, how do you know? And so on. So you can disregard those because that's just your brain playing tricks. Then there's a, another bucket where things are inevitable. Like I'm going to die. So what's inevitable has to be accepted. Because if you don't accept, you're going to spend your life having half a life with this anxiety. I spoke to some 18-year-olds once, and I said, what's your biggest fear? And I was surprised when they said it's death. I said, are you going to spend your whole life worrying about something? You know, you're going to not live your life fully. So exams, yeah, of course I've got to sit an exam. So that's inevitable. And then in the middle group, middle bucket are things that may happen. And then you can do something about it, like study harder for your exams or look for another job or whatever it might be. You know, so that kind of rational approach narrows the things down to things I can do something about. It's in my zone of, zone of influence. Um, what about acceptance, Kristen? How do you get your clients to that point because acceptance can dissolve anxiety, right? Yes, I like to call it radical acceptance. Mm. And when we can tolerate and just be with mm. the emotions and not feel like they're negative, positive, they're just there to serve us in some way, mm. we begin to accept and we can tolerate looking at hurt and pain. Mm. When we can begin to build our window of tolerance, we begin to build acceptance. Mm. We begin to take radical ownership of our feelings, our thoughts, not over responsibility where I'm owning things that aren't mine. I'm owning my own experience. Yes. Again, in my work with children, I say, suppose you're afraid of getting on a bicycle. What's the one thing you can do to end your fear completely? 
And it takes them a while, but eventually they'll come to accept that if you fall off your bicycle, you'll get back on again. You know? So if you lose a job, you'll get another one. If you somebody leaves you, you can find you'll 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 love again, and so on. So to have that inner confidence that no matter what life throws at you, you will get through. And of course, millions of human beings have done that already. You already have that capacity. And once you have that, then so many of our fears melt away because the what ifs, you say, yeah, okay, if it happens, I'll sort it. I'll deal with it at the time. That's the beautiful outcome of it. I can handle it. Yes. Yes. Before we finish talking, do you want to speak a little bit about EMDR and, and exposure therapy? Because that's a particular niche in terms of dealing with severe anxiety. Yes, I'll give you a high-level overview. There's a trauma treatment called EMDR. Mm -hmm. um, eye movement. Here, um, here's here's the key with EMDR. Let me go into a little bit because this could take a while. EMDR, um, it really allows us to integrate the thoughts and feelings. Because it's one thing for me to say, I think something, but I feel differently. It integrates the thoughts and the feelings and allows the body sensations to be cleared out. Okay. We can't erase a memory. We're reprocessing. We're reprocessing something that we're afraid of. So okay. for example, if someone's fear of flying, mm -hmm. we're reprocessing, is there a connection somewhere along the line that created the fear of flying? Okay. How did it start? How did it begin? Now we're 40 years into research with EMDR. It was founded by Dr. Francine Shapiro and the U.S. government here in the U.S. now endorses it as the, the trauma treatment modality to use. Okay. Um, to work through phobias and fears. Exposure therapy is where you're going to actually maybe go to the airport. Then step two would be you're going to go on the, you're going to go down the, you know, term, you're going to go on the, the walkway to the airplane. Three would Absolutely. be you're getting on the airplane. So we're sh slowly exposing you to what you're afraid of. And that's called exposure therapy. I've had so much success with EMDR in terms of working through anxiety and fear because it's integrating body work, mind and emotion. It's working on all three. Yes. And I find that that's an integrative approach and not to say exposure therapy doesn't work because it also has success yes. in it. Yes. And this it's is for the sort of person who's got severe anxiety, but a lot of the things we've been talking about can help prevent that or deal with the mild to moderate end. Great. So I'm gonna take a minute now, Kristen, and share my screen and show you around the website and the resources we have to deal with um, this subject, fear and anxiety. Um, and then we're gonna open the floor to questions and comments. So, so this is the um, web app, it's on the web store and it's also on Google Play and Apple Store. It's on the web, uh, it's humanwisdom.me. This first section just explores the benefits of wisdom and in how wisdom can help there's a one minute video on how this inquiry can help with anxiety. And this is uh, all free, by the way. The daily practice is free. And then we've personalized all the content because we've got a lot of content into different sections. And there's an entire section on stress and anxiety. So there's a 10 minute video on what you can do right now to get over anxiety, a more detailed module on fear and breathing exercises and the reactive mind. 
life stories where people have used this wisdom to deal with their anxiety, guided questions, short videos, podcasts, global events, and guided meditations. So plenty of content here for anyone who wants to explore this subject for themselves. And as you can see, there's a whole section on developing a calm mind. So there are, for example, uh, seven different breathing exercises that you can practice and um, do that regularly. There are also meditations there. Um, and this wisdom, of course, applies to stress and anxiety. But once you begin this journey of learning, it applies to every aspect of our life, whether it's our relationships or dealing with death or living with peace um, and so on. And the foundation of the whole project and the app is understanding how our mind works. So our past influences, here's a section on comparison, how the mind compares all the time, and so on. Okay, how can we help our children who may be going through anxiety? Or how can we prepare them to avoid it and deal with it? Well, there Unfortunately, we can't avoid it for, for starters. I mean, that's just going to be probably some natural response. First thing starts with us. This mm. is, I tell, and they're like, I'm like, yes. So if I am regulated, if I am calm, mm. if I am tending to my nervous system first, mm. that is the most important step I mm. teach. Mm. The number one most important step is for me to tend to me. It's that whole metaphor of put your oxygen mask on first, mm. and then you can help <laughs> the others. Mm. And so that's the first step. So if I am reactive mm. or I'm joining in the anxiety, mm. that's going to not be helpful. So your consistent practice of meditation, beautiful. You're modeling for them what that looks like to take care of yourself, mm. to notice your nervous system, to it's almost proactive. Your routines are important. So for me, what I do is a daily practice of gratitude. And then as we're sitting at a meal, we talk about what are you grateful for to start noticing, even though things are hard, there are also some beautiful things happening. And we share that as a family. Second thing is breathing. I've taught my kids to breathe. Mm. And so I'll be driving in the car and maybe there's a traffic jam. Hmm. And the first thing I'll do is I will breathe in front of them. And hmm. I'll tell you a quick story about how this has kind of manifested for my kids. Um, we were, we were at a grocery store and the door opened and hit me in the shin really hard. It was like the wind took, took hold. And instead of reacting, what I did is I took a deep breath and I said, oh, sweetie, <clears throat> I was talking to myself. I said, oh, sweetie, that really hurt. Mm. Oh, honey, I know that hurt. It's okay. Mm. Just take a deep breath. It's okay, sweetie. I'm talking to myself. This is what I want my kids to have an internal dialogue, talking to themselves mm. tenderly, compassionately. And my daughter looks over at me and she goes, mommy, you're being so kind to yourself. You're being so sweet. Uh, it's a moment in time that has now been embedded in her nervous system and she remembers it. And she will talk out loud to herself because she hears me doing that, talking to myself. And I'll say, take a deep breath. It's okay. Mm. You can handle this. When they hear us saying things like that, it becomes dialogue in their They embody that. Wow. They take that into their nervous system. So 
I cannot express enough. You, you doing that, the meditation, your breathing, your regulation, your daily practice is how we show them. And I will say when they were little, I'll say, let's breathe with me. Let's blow bubbles. We got bubbles out and I taught them how to breathe with bubbles. We did the cool, the cookie, smell the cookie, cool, the cookie. And then I did it myself repeatedly. The third thing I would say is openness to share what is going on for them. Openness. Don't try to tell them what to do or fix it or let them share, let them have their own experience. And without putting your experience on it or saying, for example, my daughter one day came home and she's like, there's a new girl at school. And, you know, I got moved from my normal seat at the, you know, in the cafeteria and nobody sat there. And, um, instead of me saying, and she's like, well, I don't feel like I have any friends. This is like the first day of school. And instead of me going, you do have friends. What about so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? I just let her get it out. And I said, oh yeah, sweetie. Yeah. It's okay to get it out. It's all right. Just let it out. Create a safe environment where they can share their experience. I cannot tell you when you can offer that you create a sense of security inside of themselves that mm. it's okay that they can have their own process. Yes. So that's the third thing, an open communication and dialogue in a safe environment where you offer empathy mm. and compassion for their experience. Yes. You've said three really beautiful things. One, to around the dinner table, to ask about, to start with gratitude. What am I grateful for? the practicing, the breathing, and being with, you know, I can handle this, it's okay. And if you can embody this in your life, as you say, then, and do your practicing, do your meditation, you don't have to tell them to meditate, you meditate, and you can see that they will gradually realize, yeah, that's the importance of importance of that. Ed. Everyone has shared such beautiful wisdom that I want to just acknowledge that I feel such a so honored to be in the group today. So you all are just so much love and light and I'm just so grateful. So I wanted to make sure I said that and I've, I've cherished this time together. So just thank you. Um, so a couple of takeaways is you guys have summarized them so well. So I think the number one thing is your willingness to explore with curiosity mm. what lies within you. When we do that, it leads us on the freedom to not be in bondage to anxiety or depression. We can then begin the healing journey of being in the present moment. So that's number one. Number two um, that I didn't mention that has been super helpful in my life as well is we have the grounding. We have the centering exercises. We have meditation. I also am big in journaling. Yes. I I didn't mention that I love to journal and just free flow. Let's just see where it takes me. Uh, there's no destination necessary. It's a way for me to work through or get some clarity. Um, and so that was one of the things I didn't mention that's been helpful for me and many of my clients. And I think the third thing is this idea when you decide to tend to your anxiety. When you decide that I'm going to work on regulating myself, 
the beauty of that is you share it, it changes generations. I, I'm here for a purpose mm-hmm. and that's to find, help people find healing and change generations. I love working with systems, big, you know, family systems, work systems, cultural systems, and it begins with one person doing this work and deciding that I want to break the generational cycle. I want an open family system. I want to, uh, that we can talk about, share, accept, acknowledge, offer each other a safe place to do that. That's freedom to me. And that's what creates, I don't, healthy, I would say connective, authentic relationships. Yes. That's beautifully put. And if I had to summarize the key takeaways, and maybe one thing I didn't say, for me, it begins with taking ownership and realizing it's this anxiety is not because of the exam or the job interview. It's coming from my thinking. So the answer lies in there. And as you said, the curiosity begins my journey. Second, the drill, the pre anxiety drill, all the things we talked about, really useful to practice. Learn the skill of meeting a feeling without language, of being with an emotion without a single reaction, because escaping from our stress and anxiety to alcohol and drugs and all of that causes even more trouble. And lastly, we haven't talked about it, but there is a module on the app called The Nature of the Eye. Who am I? After all, if you ask yourself, who's anxious? I am. Who am I? What is the I? And that's another journey you could begin once you've got over your initial anxiety, because that's the river that goes to the ocean. And the ocean of peace is realizing the I is the creation of our thinking. It's not, it it feels real. But once you see clearly that it's not real, the psychological self is a product of thinking. That's another way that all our sorrows can dissipate in that ocean of peace. But it's a journey and it's not something you might begin by just being curious about anxiety. But if you carry on down that road of inquiry, it takes you to that sense of grace where the sense of self is seen clearly as being an illusion of thinking. And once that's seen, then you're completely free of anything else. This podcast comes to you from the Human Wisdom Project. To find out more, please visit our website, humanwisdom.me, or download the Human Wisdom app. It's free to download and browse. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.